Father, our hearts are overwhelmed as we think about your great love. Even as we just sang and our praise team led us into wonderful lyrics and words of just your great love and grace toward us, undeserving sinners. Father, thank you that though at one time we were unworthy, now we are worthy because we are in Christ, because of his righteousness imputed, given to us. That because our sin was placed upon Jesus at the cross, and he paid for that sin, and your wrath was poured upon him, in turn we have received his righteousness, his perfect life. Our sins are paid for. It is finished. Christ's work on the cross was sufficient. It is enough. And Lord, we have victory in Him, and we're so grateful to You for that. Father, may this morning be all about a heart of gratitude and love shown toward You, and the way that we fellowship, the way that we pray, the way that we sing, the way that we hear Your Word. Father, may it be just a heartfelt response to how good You have been to us. You are always good, Lord, all the time, and we thank You for that. Father, this morning I pray for pastors and teachers and Lord, all of those who will dispense your word this weekend already have many of them, not only in this country, but all over the world, that your truth would go forth powerfully, clearly, compellingly, and that your people would respond to the truth of the gospel, be encouraged and comforted by the risen Jesus, and that those who are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, that Lord, today and this weekend will be the day of salvation. That this would be the weekend where you Show your great love and grace toward them. That even though they are great sinners, Christ is a greater Savior. Oh Lord, I pray that you would do a marvelous work in the progress of the gospel this weekend. Father, I thank you for your people this morning. And I pray that you would give us soft and tender hearts to hear your word. I pray that you would remove distractions from our minds. Those things that tend to occupy us. Father, remove those things. And may we personalize your word this morning and ask... What are, what are you, Lord, saying to me? I pray that that would be our heart's humble response this morning in the preaching and application of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 is our passage for this morning. Verses 20 and 21. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. In honor of God and His Word. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. This is the Word of God. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. There's a dear friend and fellow pastor in the East Coast by the name of Shai Lin. He is both a pastor and a lyric or artist. And he's written a song on the resurrection of Jesus. And the lyrics go something like this. At least a big portion of the lyrics. He sings, Elvis is dead. Picasso is dead. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead. 
Marilyn Monroe is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. Brando is dead. James Brown is dead. Princess D and John Lennon are dead. Biggie and Pac are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Haile Selassie are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Nero is dead. Constantine is dead. Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun are dead. Alexander the Great is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Napoleon is dead. Lao Tzu is dead. Che Guevara and Henry VIII are dead. Saddam Hussein is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Pharaoh is dead. Cyrus is dead. Darius and Sennacherib are dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. However, beloved, Jesus is alive. Caesar is dead. Herod is dead. Annas, Caiaphas, and Judas are dead. Pontius Pilate is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. From great famous entertainers to so-called great philosophers to religious idols and religious leaders to famous rulers, governors, presidents, dictators, even those of Jesus' day, all of those individuals are dead. But Jesus is alive. I love that. And that's, beloved, what we get to celebrate today. That the risen Savior is alive. He is our focus. And He is the one that we get to champion today. Even as we interact with um, family members and friends and neighbors and others who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. May we exude the joy and the love of Christ so that they may come to know this risen Savior. Amen? He is absolutely worthy of our worship. Now this morning, you know, I've been spending a lot of time of late in the book of Hebrews. And so that's why in God's providence, I think that as I was reading Hebrews this past, I don't know, four or five weeks or so, I was led to this particular prayer here in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, as the um, source of our reflection this morning on the resurrection of Jesus. We just read it a few minutes ago. It's both a doxology and a prayer. Oftentimes when you read scripture, as you know, praise and prayer go hand in hand and mix together. As you reflect upon the greatness of God, you're, you're driven to praise Him and to worship. So this is a doxology and a petition or a prayer on behalf of the writer. And you will notice in verses 18 and 19 that the author, whoever he is, we don't know for sure who he is. Some people think it was, it's Paul. Some people think it was Peter. We don't know for sure. But the author, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, asks for prayer, if you notice, in verse 18. As he closes out his, his letter, he says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Whatever his circumstances and the circumstances of his gospel partners were, he asks for prayer for themselves, that they would pray for them. And now, in verses 20 and 21, he asks, or he prays for, for them, for his readers. And his prayer is really centered and motivated, as we're going to see, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So let's look at this prayer together, verses 20 and 21. And on this resurrection day, I want you to consider four aspects of this wonderful prayer that I hope will be for your encouragement, for your comfort, and that I hope will be a testimony to you if this morning you don't know the risen Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Consider first the object of our prayer. The object of our prayer. In verse 20, you will notice that he addresses his prayer in verse 20 to the God of peace. To the God of peace. Ultimately, this is what the readers were searching for. These readers to whom he writes, they were searching for peace. A peace that surpasses all comprehension. But they were struggling, as we're going to see, to to live in the light of the the resurrection of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. So they were seeking for peace. And so he addresses this prayer to the God of peace. And isn't peace, brothers and sisters, what we actually see that the people in our world, in our country, all over the world are actually searching for right now? Peace seems to be such an evasive, elusive thing, doesn't it? Especially in our day and age. Now the wording here is very, very important. I want you to notice he doesn't say to the God, to a God of peace. He doesn't say that this is another God of peace. He's the God of peace. With that little word, the, it's a definite article in the Greek singling out God as specifically marked out as the God of peace exclusively. In other words, he's not a God of peace. He's not another Little God with a little G of peace. He's the God of peace. He's both the source and the giver of this peace. The God of peace. Now, why is he specifically referred to the God of peace, we might ask? Why? Well, I think it ties into to the author's purpose for writing. The recipients, you see, these readers, were mostly Jewish Christians who were in danger of returning to Judaism. At least from a human perspective, they were struggling with a a desire to go back to the Old Covenant. And it wasn't that the Old Covenant was meaningless. You know this. The Old Covenant was designed to reveal God's glory. It was designed to reveal the majesty of God. It was designed to to, to, uh, call them to the particular life of holiness that God required of them. And of course, as people lived under the Old Covenant, they realized very quickly that they were great sinners, and that they couldn't keep God's commandments. And so ultimately, the Old Covenant was, was not an end in itself, but it was a, a means to get the people in the Old Testament to realize there is no way that I can ever measure up to this perfect, glorious, majestic God. I need someone greater, and now we know who that someone greater is. is Jesus the Messiah, right? But they are struggling here. They're struggling with the belief and the conviction That Jesus exclusively was enough to save them from their sins. They were in danger of of adding works, good deeds to the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And so time and time again, he writes to these Hebrews to remind them that Jesus is enough, not only to save them from their sins, but to keep them all the way until they finish the race of the Christian life. From beginning to end, it's all God's work. It's the message of Hebrews, and Christ is sufficient. And he reminds them of the principle of sola fide, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, and nothing else that we bring to the table. It's all in Christ alone. And so with these opening words of his prayer, the writer of Hebrews is saying, God alone 
And not anything that we do is able to grant you Christians peace. He is the source and the giver of all peace. And so he directs his prayer to God, who is able to grant them this peace. And I want to remind us this morning, today, we should be reminded of the reality that true, lasting, sustainable peace is not found in anything that the world has to offer, right? There's nothing that the world has to offer that will give you ultimate, sustainable, true, lasting peace. Especially if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you have not repented of your sins and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that it doesn't matter what you pursue in this world. What you seek in this world that you think will get you satisfaction. You were created to worship God and to love Him and to enjoy Him supremely in this life and forevermore. Nothing in this life will bring you true, lasting, sustainable peace. So many of us who are here who are Christians, who have turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, can bear witness of that. That we pursued after the passing pleasures of sin in this world. And that there's nothing, nothing, nothing that compares to Jesus. Even in the midst of our suffering and our trials this past year, we have learned again and again that Jesus is much, much better, much, much greater. Amen, brethren? So there's nothing that will give you peace that is lasting and sustainable in this world. True peace is not found in reforming society. True peace is not found in reforming education or economic, your economic situation. True peace is not found in self-fulfillment or self-actualization, achieving the real you and all your potential. True peace is not found in politics or politicians or the, the reforming of a secular government. True peace is found alone in the God of peace, the one true God, who His personal name is Yahweh, and in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all about Him. And some of these things have their value in their proper place for a while, but they cannot bring true, sustainable, transforming peace. It's He alone that brings peace. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27, My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. What kind of peace is that? Well, it's first and foremost, a vertical peace with God, your Creator. Because you see, every single one of us Every creature born into this world, every human being born into this world is not born neutral. We are born sinners. We are sinners by nature. We are hostile to God. We run away from God, not toward God. We don't love God. We don't worship God naturally in and of ourselves. Far from obeying God, we continually break His commandments. If there is something, my friend, that characterizes you and I from the womb is that we are rebel sinners before a holy and just God. Rebel sinners. As we saw last week, we, we rob God of what rightfully belongs to Him, namely all of ourselves, internally and outwardly. We are rebel sinners. And because of this, what do we deserve? What do we deserve? We deserve God's just punishment. We deserve hell and condemnation. And yes, hell does exist. 
Hell is a place of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth, of eternal suffering as a reminder of the infinite holiness of God and the seriousness of having offended this holy and just God and rejected His provision for the forgiveness of your sins in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is real. Condemnation for those who do not know Jesus, who do not repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, is real. And I say this in love to you this morning, if you're here and you haven't given your life to the Lord, if you haven't turned from your sins and trusted Christ, today is the day when you can make things right with God. Because you see, the good news is that God has made a way for you to be reconciled, for you to be restored. And that way is found in putting your trust in His Son, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, the one who came and lived the perfect life that you and I should live, but we can't do it. And though perfect and innocent and blameless, Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross in our place, bearing our sins, taking upon, our, upon Himself our punishment, the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus took upon Himself the fullness of His Father's wrath on our behalf. And you know what else? He did it willingly. He did it joyfully. He, out of a great love for you and I, went to the cross, despising the shame, looking forward to the joy of of knowing that sinners would be forgiven based upon His sacrifice. And He went to the cross voluntarily for sinners such as you and I. What wondrous grace that is. What unmerited favor, unmerited kindness in Christ Jesus. And then especially today, let us not forget that Jesus, three days later, factually, historically, physically, in bodily form, rose from the dead. Amen? He is the God-man who powerfully conquered sin and death on our behalf. This is the good news. This is the good news. And again, perhaps this morning, you're, you know you're not at peace with God. You know that this is like your occasional visit to church. And I'm so thankful that you're here. And I believe that there's, there are no accidents with God. I believe that God has you here because He wanted, to hear you, hear, wanted you to hear this good news that you can be reconciled to your Creator this morning through Jesus Christ, through this risen One. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Acknowledge that you are guilty and that you deserve His judgment. Agree with the reality from the heart that you cannot save yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Not by works of righteousness. Not by humanitarian efforts. Not by good deeds. Not by any effort that you make. You can never measure up to God's perfect standard. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Salvation is found alone in coming with empty hands of faith and saying, Lord, God, my Creator, I have nothing to offer you whereby you can grant me favor. It's all based upon my trust in the fact that Jesus died for my personal sins 2,000 years in that historical event called the cross of Calvary. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Be reconciled to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what about for those of us who have trusted in Christ? What about for those of us who, who are followers of Jesus? You know, for some of us, it may be that you, you know that you are absolutely convinced that you stand at peace with God this morning. 
that you are a believer, you are a Christian, you believe Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You believe with all of your heart that you are positionally reconciled to God, at peace with God, but you say, oh, Pastor Kempis, I know this factually, I know this intellectually, I know all of the scriptures. I believe with my heart that I am positionally at peace with God. I've trusted in Jesus. But how do I come to feel that experience of peace? How come I lack that peace that the Bible speaks of? How do I get that? How do I I appropriate that ongoing experience of true peace as I live the Christian life? You say the world is so unstable. The world is so unsettled. I'm so restless in my life. It's an important concern, isn't it? And might I add a, a common one, a common struggle that I hear from so many believers, including my own experience, especially during this, these times in our country when there's so much upheaval, so much disruption, so much tension, it's difficult to experience peace, right? Can you identify with that this morning? I can. Listen, our position in Christ may be secured because it's got nothing to do with anything that we've done in the past, nor will do in the present. It's got nothing to do with performance. Peace with God is procured not by our good works, but solely upon the merits of King Jesus. Solely based upon his merits. Nothing will change that. Justification, a right standing before a holy and righteous God is grounded and rooted and based upon Jesus' merits and not anything that we can ever do. But, oh, how do we get experience, ongoing peace in the Christian life? Even as believers, that great benefit of peace and our, 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 our salvation, the peace that surpasses all comprehension, that may be lacking in our life. This is a common struggle, especially these in these tumultuous days. And so that's why our next point is so important. We move from the object of our prayer, who is the God of peace, to secondly notice the basis of our prayer. The basis of our prayer. And here we begin to see the specific relevance of this prayer to what we celebrate today, namely the resurrection. Look at verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. How has God procured peace and hope for us who are in Christ Jesus, even in these challenging days and that ongoing experience of peace? He has intervened in human history to perform the ultimate rescue operation, right? And what rescue operation is that? He raised his son. He brought up Jesus our Lord from the dead Verse 20 tells us. Have you read the latest stats? At least from what some hopefully reputable sources tell us. They tell us that, well, in the upwards of 2 million, 2.7, 2.8 million people have died of COVID worldwide. 550 plus thousand people have died of COVID in the U.S. Over 50,000 just in California alone. That's a lot of dead people. And on top of that, you have many others, 
thousands of others who have died, whom we will never know about, who have died of other illnesses and sicknesses. Thousands of others who have died of terminal illness. Others who have died in accidents of various sorts. Many who have died by way of murder at the hands of others. There have been a lot of dead people. Do you know that roughly speaking, two people die every second worldwide? At least two people die worldwide every second. Just in the time that we've been here, there have been hundreds who have died already. Somewhere in the world. And you know what all of these statistics tell us? That death is real. That death is a reality. And the Bible tells us why death is a reality. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That sin produces death. Sin in all its forms produces death in this life physically and ultimately eternal death, which is separation from God forever and ever and ever. If there is one stat, in other words, that you can be sure of this morning is that you will die one day. And you've seen it in our world, haven't you? People live in agony of this at this. People live in fear of this reality. And yet today, beloved, because God the Father has brought up His Son Jesus from the dead, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we realize that death cannot touch us anymore, eternally speaking, right? What a great truth that is. So that we don't need to live in fear or despair. Do you know why the resurrection of Jesus is everything to us? Because it is both proof and power. Both proof and power. Proof in that Jesus' claims were true because he proved it by virtue of being raised from the dead. It's proof that he was indeed, as he said, both God, 100% God, and man. He is the God-man who came to die for sinners on the cross. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus proved that what Jesus said about himself is true and trustworthy. You can bank on it, on what Jesus said, because he rose from the dead. Amazing. And his resurrection is also power. It was the ultimate powerful display of Jesus' victory now over sin and death. It was the Apostle Peter in Acts 2.24 who preaches God, the Father, raised him up again, namely Jesus. Here it is, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for Jesus to be held in death's power, in its power. Wow. In the resurrection of Jesus, we see that the the enemy's been defeated. Death couldn't hold the Lord Jesus down. This is why we exuberantly sang earlier, didn't we? Up from the grave he arose. With a mighty triumph over his foes, he arose a victor from the dark domain. What dark domain is that? Death and hell. He declared victory to the demonic forces, including Satan. He arose a victor from the dark domain, death and hell, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. Amen? 
That hallelujah is a, is a joyful noise of, of praise, not for our victory, but for the victory of Christ by virtue of his resurrection. So it's both proof and power that we sing about in the resurrection of Christ. Be comforted this morning that the great tyrants of sin and death have been defeated by the Lion of Judah. Listen, if you are in Christ, you need no longer fear. Philip Brooks writes to Christians, to Christians, let every man and woman count himself immortal if you're in Christ. Let them catch the revelation of Jesus and his resurrection. Let them, Christians, say not merely Christ is risen, but also I shall arise. Isn't that a fact? That in Christ you will one day rise in bodily, physical form, no more with this broken body that Kempis Hernandez had, but with a glorified body. That's a glorious day, isn't it? Especially for those of us who have aches and pains now, some more than others. It's something to rejoice about. And so Christ's resurrection is the, the proof that the one in whom we've trusted is trustworthy and its power in that sin and death no longer have mastery over us if we are in Christ. It's power, powerful victory over sin and death. Now notice in verse 20, who is this one that God brought up? Who is this one that God brought up who is the basis of our hope and of our peace? Notice that Jesus, our Lord, is referred to there as the great shepherd of the sheep. Oh, this is one of my favorite titles of Christ here in in this particular verse. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Literally, the shepherd of the sheep, the great one. The mega one. Megan is the Greek word. The mega one. The shepherd of the sheep, the mega one. I love that. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus is the the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, he is the chief shepherd who will one day return and reward those who belong to him. And here, he is the great shepherd of the sheep. And so what does this title point to? Well, first of all, it points to, to his leadership of the sheep, but not just to his leadership to his supreme, incomparable superiority as leader of the sheep. Why? By virtue of the resurrection. He is the unrivaled leader, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5. By virtue of his resurrection, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, Peter preaches, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He, Jesus, is the one whom God exalted to his right hand. Here it is, as a prince and a savior. Prince has the idea there of of leader, the unrivaled leader. As a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And in the book of Hebrews, if you've read the book before, and you should maybe this week, take some time to read Some of the contents of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, the writer has made the point again and again that Jesus is the unrivaled leader. He's greater than the angels, greater than than, than physical humans. He's greater than than Moses, greater than the apostles, greater than any human high priests, greater than the temple, greater than the tabernacle. He has inaugurated a new covenant that is greater than the old covenant. He's greater than all of those faithful saints in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. There's no one who compares to Jesus. He is the unrivaled leader shepherd of the church. He is our risen savior. 
And if that wasn't enough, his title as the great shepherd emphasizes also his loving protection and tender care for his sheep. How many times this past year have you not had those moments where you begin to contemplate or maybe read and meditate on Psalm 23, verse 1? The Lord is who? My shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. In those low, dark valleys in the last year and all the challenges that have come to our life, again and again and again, God's Word, including such titles like the Lord is my shepherd, have comforted us, haven't they? That He's our comfort. He's our encouragement. That's why I love the words of that wonderful hymn of old, Savior, like a shepherd lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us. For our use thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast brought us thine we are. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast brought us thine we are. I'm sure that has been the heart's cry of many of us this last year, right? He is the great shepherd who is our personal shepherd. Why? By virtue of his death and resurrection, beloved, he's become the caretaker of our souls, the chief caretaker of our souls. Furthermore, if you will notice in verse 20, we are now the beneficiaries in Christ of an eternal covenant and of an eternal inheritance. Look at verse 20. It says there that the God of peace brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, and here it is, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? Well, blood. Blood always represents the sacrificial, substitutionary death of Christ by which he paid for sins, right? Look back with me in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. Just a few pages back. Hebrews 10 verse 29. And here the writer is in pointing to the, the greater new covenant. He's contrasting the old covenant and the, and the new. And a couple of passages that I want to read to you. Verse 29, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insult, insulted the Spirit of grace? And what the writer is saying here in verse 20, he's he's cautioning the readers not to take lightly the person and the work of Christ so as to return to the old covenant. Why? Because the new covenant is greater. And if under the old covenant, those who rejected God and his word were punished, how much more when you turn your back on the blood of the covenant that the son of God inaugurated? How much greater will the punishment be? If you turn your back on the sacrifice of Christ, look at chapter 9 and verse 13 of Hebrews. Chapter 9 and verse 13. And here he really contrasts the old covenant and the new covenant that Jesus has inaugurated. Hebrews 9 verse 13. First the old. For if the blood of goats, verse 13, and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... He says, if that old sacrificial system was all about the the outward cleansing of your physical body, verse 14, how much more? Here's the greater 
beauty of the new covenant. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now we're talking about an internal definitive cleansing on the inside, right? That the old covenant couldn't perform. That now the spirit performs on the inside under the new covenant. Verse 15, for this reason, Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What's the point in what he's saying? The old covenant was external, temporary, inadequate to take away sins. The new covenant inaugurated by Christ's death, his bloody death and his glorious resurrection is superior, sufficient, enough to wipe away sins, eternal and permanent, lasting. It cannot be taken away from you. Your inheritance under the new covenant, if you trusted in Christ, no matter what you do, no matter your failures, no matter your victories, no matter whatever lack of performance you have displayed this past year. He is the inaugurator of a better covenant the new covenant and so the basis of our hope this morning and of our peace beloved is not what we do on an everyday basis we should pursue holiness and the power of the spirit we should pursue loving grateful obedience as we've said in the last few weeks but ultimately it's about the risen christ it's about him he is the basis for of your of our hope he is the basis of our experience of peace And we can find comfort and rest in that. Amen? Comfort and rest in the fact that though our sin is great and death is the inevitable result of sin, Christ is greater than our sin and of our death. I love what John Newton, as he contemplated his death, his latter days of life, he said this, although my memory is now fading, I remember two great things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I would only modify one little thing there. Christ is a greater Savior, right? Greater Redeemer. He is the great Shepherd, the Chief Shepherd. Beloved, for those of us who have repented of our sins and we put our trust in the risen Christ, we can say like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can say that in Christ. You see, the resurrection is the basis of our present and ongoing experience of peace. And this is why it is so important to preach the gospel, the good news concerning the person and the work of Christ, his finished work every single day of your life, especially right now when there is so so many tumultuous days in front of us and ahead of us. From what we can see, nothing's going to get easier. I kept thinking and praying, Lord, thank you for 2020. Thank you so much for sustaining us, sustaining your people through all of this. And you know what? I guess in our naivety, some of us, including me, kept thinking maybe 2021 will be a little bit more, there'll be a little bit of relief. And 2021 has already had its fair challenges. Amen? See, we think to ourselves, yes, I affirm Jesus paid for my sins. 
Yes, I affirm that by faith I'm now at peace with God, not based upon anything that I've done, but surely, surely in the Christian life, it's all up to me now in the midst of all of the challenges that I face to secure this ongoing peace. It's up to me, not so, beloved. Not so. The writer of Hebrews will tell us it's the God of peace who continues to sustain you in the Christian life on the basis of what? On the basis of his finished work on the cross and his glorious resurrection on that basis. And that is the beginning for us as we contemplate that glorious resurrection and that victory that Christ has had over sin and death and our victory over sin and death by virtue of our union with Christ where peace is going to come from for us. Now, in light of the resurrection of Christ, what should we ask for? What should we ask for? We've seen the object of our prayer, the God of peace. We've seen the basis of our prayer, the risen Christ. Consider third, the request of our prayer. The request of our prayer. He prays that the God of peace, if you notice in verse 21, who raised Jesus from the dead, will equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, we are not done on earth. The day of the resurrection, today, and what we celebrate, we celebrate because our King is worthy and because it is the basis of our hope, and yet we recognize that we are still on mission here in this world, right? And so the writer of Hebrews knows that, that he has spoken about the greatness of Jesus, that Christ is better than everything, but they still have to live on mission here in this world. And so he petitions on their behalf that they would be equipped in every good thing to do his will, working in us, he includes himself as part of this, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Notice that his request is twofold. First, that God would continually be equipping them for service. That's that little word, if you notice, in verse 21, equip. It's the word kathartizo. It means in this context to make someone fully competent, fully capable for a task. And that task is serving the Lord with all of your heart. It's what every good employer, every good boss does for their employees, right? They have goals for you and all of that for you, for you to meet. But any good employer, any good boss understands that they need to fully supply you with the tools that you need to succeed, right? Who more than that than our Heavenly Father? God has done this for us who are in Christ and that He gives us every good thing, according to verse 21, that we need to do His will, to do that which is pleasing in His sight as defined by His Word. He gives us everything that we need. In in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul was confident that God would do this for the Philippian believers. He says, I am confident of this very thing, that He, God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, ultimately, it's a a work of God from beginning to end, isn't it? From the time that He saves you in history, any point in time, uh, you are converted. From the time of the new birth to the very end when you stand in His presence, it's all His work, ultimately. All of His work. And the one who raised His Son from the dead who called you to himself, promises to supply everything that you need to be holy and obedient in this world as you carry out your mission, Christian. He will fully supply you. He will fully equip you. 
You want to be a, a godly, faithful father and husband in your home? God will supply what you need. He will give you the strength that you need. He will empower you to be a faithful husband, a faithful father. You want to be a faithful wife and a faithful mother to your husband and to your kids? God will supply you. God will equip you, sister in the Lord. You want to be a a godly grandparent for many of you? God will supply what you need. He will equip you as you humble yourself before him. You want to be a faithful, godly, single person? who uses your, your gifts and your abilities, having more time on your hands to, to glorify and exalt the Lord, God will supply you. He will equip you for, with everything that you need. You want to be a godly employer or employee, witnessing for the sake of Christ in that secular environment. God will supply what you need. He promises to equip you, to empower you by His Spirit, to give you everything that pertains to life and godliness. You want to be that bold evangelist, who is not afraid of telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of salvation, God will supply what you need. That's what he's getting at here. And what's our responsibility in all of this? To be willing, broken vessels for him to use us, right? God will provide everything. We just need to be available for the Lord out of humility. Lord, use me. I'm weak. I'm broken. I'm inadequate. But Lord, use me. That heart of humility, beloved, God will equip you. God will supply you. And then notice also that he not only prays for them for for service, but also that God would equip them to please him, to be pleasing to God. He says in verse 21, working in us, the writer now includes himself, working in us. I also need this, he says, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. As Christians, we no longer uh, live life for the eyes of people, right? It's all about the, the eye, living in the light of the presence of God. For His eyes alone, out of a heart of worship and gratitude for Him. And so what the author is praying for here, he's saying that same energizing power that God exercised in raising Jesus from the dead now energizes you. And I'm praying for you Christians that it would be the same power that energizes you now to do what pleases Him, to serve Him. That's our heart, isn't it? That's our heart this morning. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I want to show you this. This has always been just a staggering passage for me. Amazing. Every time I read this, chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 20 and 21, Paul is closing out the, the first chapter, the first three chapters of Ephesians, which basically have just spoken so much about the calling of God upon our lives as believers. And now he's going to transition in chapter 4 and verse 1. We're talking about the conduct of the believer. In light of your calling, first three chapters of Ephesians, here's how you need to conduct yourself, latter three chapters of Ephesians. But before he does that, before he transitions into chapter 4, notice that he exalts God in verse 20 and God's work and his doing in the lives of these believers. Verse 20, Now to him, God who is able to do, and then he's just notice the superlatives here, these excessive terms piled on top of one another, just exalting the great work of God. Now to him, God, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. I mean, this guy is like bursting forth into praise, right? Because God is so great. I'm going to just pile on words, just accentuating and exalting the great work of God. He's done far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. 
But then notice this. According to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that staggering? That last half of verse 20. According to the power that works within us, that works in me, feeble, weakling, Christian, yes. You mean to tell me that the same power exercised by God back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, whereby he, he raised his son physically from the dead, is the power that works in me as a believer? Yes. You mean to tell me that the same power that God exercised in raising me from spiritual death, now works in me as a believer? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what the Word of God is saying in verse 20, isn't it? This is amazing. This is astounding. Listen, you feel weak these days? I do. You feel inadequate these days? You feel weary these days? You feeling overwhelmed by the array of unforeseen events in our world and all over our country? Can you identify with that? God will work in and through you to do his will, to serve him and to please him, Christian. He promises to. That's what the writer of Hebrews is is praying about here. In light of the resurrection, in light of the fact that we are in Christ, that we would now be empowered for service and to be walking obedience to the Lord in conformity to his will as defined in his word. All of this is so reminiscent of 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5 and verse 23, which says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. That's another way of saying, May the God of peace himself make you like Jesus. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Listen, not only has the God of peace called you to himself and saved you, he will sustain you, Christian, all the way to the end. Why? By virtue of the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of King Jesus, the one whom we celebrate today. Amen? Amen. He is great. It's not enough to just have the right beliefs, you see. It's not enough to just have the right intentions even to obey and honor God. Recognize this morning as in accordance with how this writer is praying for these believers. Without God's help, we cannot do anything for God's glory. We need his empowering working in and through us. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says Yahweh of hosts. And do you remember what our Lord Jesus said in the upper room to his disciples? We're already beginning to experience the the, the mourning of the fact that he's going to die on the cross. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. There's nothing we can do apart from him. Listen, beloved, in light of the resurrection, for those of us who are in Christ, God will continue to supply what we need to serve him and to please him. And I don't know about you, but that brings me great comfort in this world. Apart from wanting to see people come to know Jesus in this world, I long to go home. Amen? I long to go home. I long to see Christ. We were talking as elders this last Thursday night about 
You know, what is it that we essentially look forward to when we, you know, go to heaven? And, you know, we were reminiscing about the fact that even the greatest thing is just seeing Jesus, seeing Christ, seeing our Savior. I long for that. I know you do as well. Well, last of all, notice, because God does all the work through broken but willing vessels, he alone deserves all of the glory, doesn't he? Verse 21, this is the goal of our prayer. The goal of our prayer is the glory of God. He ends by saying, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I believe those words to whom are speaking specifically in context of God the Father. Because earlier in chapter 13 and verse 15, he said, Through him, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, specifically God the Father. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, the Father's name. Ultimately, everything is for the glory of God the Father through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came to the world. He came to bring glory to his Father, right? That's why Jesus went to the cross, First and foremost, for the sake of the glory of his Father, and then because he loved us to pay for our sins. And so it's all for the glory of the great name of God. Now, as we draw to a close, and we're going to be singing one last song, okay? I want to ask you to stand with me, okay? And on this important day, beloved, as we've said, remember that not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but he, that is the hope that for those of us who've trusted in Christ, one day we will rise again as well. Amen? Are you looking forward to that? I am. I am. But we also remember that the resurrection of Christ has implications and application for how we live in the here and now on mission, right? If God wanted us to go home, he would take us today. We are here to live in the light of the resurrection on mission for the sake of the gospel to see people come to know Jesus all of the more, to build up the church by preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel, right? So there are implications and application for the resurrection of Christ, even for our mission here in this world. And so before the worship team leads us in a song, I just want us to contemplate and reflect on this great verse. It's been a great encouragement to me, and it's in the context of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, where Paul writes to the Corinthians... And the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, has been all about proving the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And then he turns around and he says, and in light of that, because Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead as well. But then, what does that mean for the way that we live life now, in the here and now on earth? And that's what this verse speaks to. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, in light of the risen Christ and your future resurrection, therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.